Amen. Well, it's good to see you here this morning. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In just a moment, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14. Um, as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to uh, remind you of our mission statement. And some of you may be new this morning and have uh, never heard our mission statement as a church before. But our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy live and proclaim the gospel. And uh, over a three-year period, we have been working through our mission statement by focusing on specific elements of our mission statement in six-month increments. So uh, in 2021, we focused uh, six months on the glory of God, and then the latter part of that year, we focused on the gospel. And this year, the first part of this year, we focused on making disciples, and now we are focusing on the theme of enjoying the gospel. And then as you see there on the slide, uh, next year we will look at living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. Uh, But currently we are focusing on the theme of enjoying the gospel. And we've considered this theme from the book of Philippians, Uh, we've considered this theme from the Psalms, And now we are going to look at this theme of enjoying the gospel uh, in a short series in Ephesians. We're going to work through Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14, and then we will consider uh, what God has to say to us this morning from His Word. So follow along with me. Uh, I'll begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word, and we are grateful for how You reveal to us in Your Word how You purpose to save us and redeem us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look to the Scriptures this morning, we pray that You would lead us and guide us by Your Spirit. Open our eyes to the glory and wonder of Your grace. And we pray that You would fill our hearts with thanksgiving and with worship. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning provides a wonderful example 
of someone enjoying the gospel. You see it there in verse 3, Paul opens with these words, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places.'" And then what follows is one long sentence. Now, I've pointed this out before, but it's worth pointing out again. Uh, Young people, if you are taking an English class, uh, your English teacher might have taught you that if you're writing a sentence, about 25 words is the maximum words for a good sentence. If you go beyond 25 words, you need to start breaking that thing up, right? Um, Because your sentence is getting too long. Well, here what we find in Ephesians chapter 1 is that Paul begins to write the church in Ephesus, and he opens his letter with this really long sentence. In fact, the opening sentence of Paul's letter to the Ephesians contains over 200 words. Can you believe that? Verse 3 through verse 14 in the original language is one sentence. Now, in the English, they've put in commas and they've put in periods. The translators have to break it up. But in the original language, it's one long sentence. It is the ultimate run-on sentence. Now, why is this? Well, it seems what is happening here is that the Apostle Paul begins to think about God's grace. He begins to think about God's mercy in his life and in the church in Ephesus. And he's just overwhelmed. He's overcome. He gets carried away and praise begins to just gush and flow out of him as he recalls God's mercy and grace. Essentially, Paul says, you want to know what God did for us? He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you might say, well, what are those spiritual blessings? And then Paul goes on. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us through the blood of His Son. He forgave us. He granted us an eternal inheritance. He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, what we see is the Apostle Paul enjoying the gospel. He's delighting in it. He's reveling in it. He's treasuring it. And this, my friends, glorifies God. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to unpack what the Apostle Paul says here in verses 3 through 14. But this morning, I want us to focus specifically on verses 3 through 6. I've entitled our message, Rejoicing in Sovereign Grace. And what we see in these opening verses, verses 3 through 6, is that Paul highlights God's sovereignty and initiative in our salvation. There are actually two key doctrines that emerge from our passage that establish God's sovereignty in our salvation. They are the doctrines of election and predestination. So you see, first of all, the doctrine of election there in chapter 1, verse 3. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now that word translated chose there is eklego in the original language. You can see kind of the relationship to our English word election. Eklego, election. It means to pick out, to choose, to select for oneself. Actually, this verse could be translated, even as He elected us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, you see the doctrine of predestination. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
Now, the word there for predestinate is uh, praorizo in the original language. It means to decide beforehand, to predestine, to predetermine, to preordain. So predestination, as you see here in the text, is closely associated with the doctrine of election. In fact, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the doctrine of election, he naturally then speaks of the doctrine of predestination. They are closely associated. So what we see here is that the Bible teaches that doctrines uh, in the doctrine of election and predestination that God chose before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself solely based upon his own purpose and grace. Let me repeat that, okay? So the Bible teaches us in the doctrines of election and predestination that God chose before the foundation of the world to save a people for himself solely based upon his own purpose and grace. This is what we mean when we speak of God's sovereign grace. Now, I wanted to start this morning by just stating simply, clearly, up front, what the Bible teaches regarding these doctrines. However, I do want to acknowledge that I know that these doctrines are often hotly debated. In fact, it seems to me that many will go to great lengths to reason them away or simply outright deny these biblical truths. So this week, as I was reflecting on the passage and considering uh, preaching this text this morning, I began to think about different objections to the doctrine of election and predestination. I was able to come up with eight common objections to God's sovereign grace. And in the rest of our time together, what I want to do is just state those objections and then respond to those objections from our text, from verses 3 through 6 in particular. In so doing, my hope is that none of us would reject these glorious biblical gospel truths, but rather, like the Apostle Paul, we would come to treasure them, to cherish them, and to rejoice in them. As you see here in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul models for us that these doctrines of election and predestination are not finally to be debated, but rather they are to be rejoiced in. So, the first objection is this. And this is our outline. If you're taking notes, the objections serve as our outline. The first objection is this. Election is a philosophical concept, not a biblical truth. Election is a philosophical concept, not a biblical truth. Now, I realize, as I acknowledged earlier, that election and predestination makes some folks feel very uncomfortable. And so when we begin to discuss these truths, some people might cringe kind of inside. Maybe they find these things to be offensive, or others might feel uncertain. Maybe it's kind of overwhelming, like, how do I, how do I make sense of all of this? And as a result, some people attempt to wish it all away. And some would say, in attempting to wish it away, that election and predestination are not truths that emerge from the biblical text. They're not in the Bible itself. Rather, they are philosophical ideas that folks impose on the Scriptures, impose on the Bible, read into the Bible. And understand, my friends, that before we can 
accept and delight in these gospel truths, we must first see them and acknowledge them in the Bible. So I just want to take a moment here. I mean, there's so many verses I could point you to. Let me just take a moment to briefly survey a few verses that speak of this truth. Earlier, Drew uh, read one of them for us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Listen to the words of God in reference to Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Or listen to the words of the Lord Jesus when He speaks to His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give it to you. Or listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So these are not ideas that are simply read into the text, but rather we find the biblical authors explicitly speaking of these truths over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And let me just let me take it one point further, okay? In addition... What we see in the Scriptures is that these truths are not just for pointy-headed, ivory-tower theologians who are disconnected from the everyday joys and trials of the average man or woman. You see, some people might say that. Well, that's for people who are, you know, super academic or intellectual or that sort of thing. I don't really need to concern myself with that. Well, take note, my friends... In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul is not corresponding with fellow Jewish theologians. He is not writing to seminary professors. He's not writing to philosophers or intellectuals. He is writing to a local church like this one right here, Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. He would have written the letter, it would have been sent to this local church and read to the church as a whole. You know what that means. Paul believes that the baker, the mechanic, the school teacher, the mom with small kids, the father who's trying to make ends meet, the teenager who's trying to live out their Christian faith among their peers will be helped and strengthened and their joy will increase if they know and understand and embrace God's sovereign, electing, predestinating love and grace. Dear Christian, God revealed these truths in Scripture for you, for your good, and for your joy. Second objection. Election refers to God choosing Christ as the way of salvation, not choosing us for salvation. This is what some people will say. When the Bible teaches about election... 
that election refers to choosing Christ as the way of salvation, not choosing us for salvation. So those who take this position would point to our verse here, verse 4, and they would say, look there, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. They would say, see, that's Paul's point. Paul is attempting to make the point that God chose Christ as the way of salvation. He chose us in him, that is, in Christ. That's Paul's real point. Now, no doubt it is true that God chose Christ to be our Savior and our Redeemer. So the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him, that is through Christ, are believers in God. So no faithful Christian would deny that God chose Jesus to be our Savior and Redeemer. And no doubt Paul affirms this truth. But of course, in this text and in so many others, Paul and the other biblical authors are saying more than that. Paul is not only saying that God has chosen Christ to be our Savior and Redeemer, he is saying that God chose us to be his people of redemption and salvation. Is this not exactly what the text says? Look there at verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, God did not simply choose Christ as the way of salvation and then cross His fingers and hope that we would one day figure it all out. That we would put our faith in Him, hoping that despite all our sinfulness and the hardness of our heart, that we would one day willingly and happily receive Jesus and His salvation. No, my friends, understand that in this sense, God did not simply make our salvation possible. He made our salvation certain. By divine election and sovereign predestination, He made our salvation certain. He chose Christ to be our Redeemer, and He chose us to be His redeemed. Third, the third objection is this. Election is not finally determined by our will, or our election is finally determined by our will, not God's will. Okay, so let me state that again. Election is finally determined by our will, not God's will. This is the third objection to the doctrine of election. Now, this may in fact be the most popular and common objection against the biblical doctrine of election. So here's the idea, and some of you may have heard this before, and The idea is that God looked through uh, eternity past into the present. He looked through the channel of time and he saw that we would choose Christ and as a result, then he chose us. Okay? So that's the idea. So our will is the determining factor in God's election. So God looks through the eternity of time, the channel of time. From eternity past, he sees that we will choose Christ, so then he chooses us. Now, why would someone take that position? Well, folks would point to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And you might want to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. In verse 29, Paul writes, 
For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, someone would point to a passage like that, and they would say, see, you see it there right there in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So God knew beforehand the decision that we would make regarding Christ. He knew that we would choose Christ, and therefore he predestined, he chose us. Now, it is vital for us to understand that when Paul says, God foreknew us in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul means that before the foundation of the world, God loved us and personally committed himself to us. Now, why do I say that? Let me just just say a few things here. First, it is true that the word foreknow or know can be used in the Bible simply to refer to information. So, I know that Bob has brown hair. I know that fact about him. Okay? That would be an example. But someone might say, I know Bob has brown hair, but I don't know him. We've never really talked before. You see, we use know in two different ways there, right? I know he has brown hair. I have certain information about him, but I don't know him. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. I've never really talked to him. In other words, I don't have a relationship with him. See, to know someone can also indicate a relationship, a personal, intimate knowledge. So someone else might say, oh yeah, I do know Bob. We've worked together for years, and sometimes our families go on vacation together. Well, what are they saying? Well, based on the fact that we've worked together and we've gone on vacation, I know him personally. I have a relationship with him. In English, we use the word know in both these ways. Just in terms of knowing facts or information about somebody and in terms of having a personal relationship with them. And we can make a distinction between the two. Greek uses these words in the same way also. So let me just give you a few examples of how in the Bible, and this is in Hebrew and Greek actually, in the Bible we see knowledge being referred to as a relationship. So in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, we we read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Now, I can assure you that when Moses wrote those words, he intended for us to understand that Adam knew more than some basic data facts about Eve, right? The color of her hair, the color of her eyes. Now, he's referring to sexual intimacy, right? That resulted in the conception of a child. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Or Amos chapter 3, verse 2, when The Lord speaks regarding the nation of Israel. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, in the Lord saying, You, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth, is God saying, I didn't know that any other nations existed in the world. So that if you were to ask God, Do you know that the nation of Philistia exists, or the nation of Edom, or Ammon or Babylon or Assyria, that all those nations exist, God would say, oh no, I only knew Israel existed. Right? No, that's not what God is saying. God says, I know all of the nations of the earth, but I only know 
you. In other words, I've only committed myself to you personally, savingly, covenantally. This is what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. When he says, and then I will declare to them, that is those who are unbelievers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not saying, wow, I didn't even know y'all existed. You came out of nowhere. No. Jesus is saying, I didn't know you personally, savingly. You never trusted in me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is what foreknowledge means in the context of Romans 8, 29, and 30. In fact, it's obvious from the context that this is what Paul means. Paul is not saying God foreknew a decision, but he is clearly saying God foreknew a people. In fact, there's no reference to a decision in the text, and if you try to insert it, it makes the text unintelligible. For the decision he foreknew, he also predestined. It makes no sense. In fact, it doesn't say that. Rather, what the text says is, for those whom he foreknew. He foreknew a people. He foreknew them personally, savingly, covenantally. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's repeated again and again and again. God is acting towards a people to save them and to redeem them. And he knew them before they ever knew him. Now, my friends, a misunderstanding of foreknowledge turns the meaning and the message of God's sovereign grace upside down. Do you see that? I mean, some would have us to believe that the biblical authors are teaching us that God's election is based on our election, that God's predestination is finally determined by our predetermination. And that is exactly the opposite of what the biblical authors are intending to convey. And it robs us of a certain joy. Do you notice that even in these few verses here in Ephesians, Paul's overwhelming emphasis is not on our will as the deciding, final, determining factor in our salvation, but rather on God's. Look there in verse 4. He chose us. Verse 5. He predestined us according to the purpose of His will. And Paul says the same thing in verse 11, if you skip down to verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now here's what this means if you're a Christian, my friend. Before the foundation of the world, before your father and mother ever knew one another, before you were conceived in your mother's womb, before anyone ever knew your name, God didn't just know about you. He didn't just have some information about your existence or some knowledge of a decision that you one day might make. Rather, before you had done anything good or bad, He knew you personally. 
He set His heart upon you, His love and His affection, and He determined to save you and redeem you and to make you His own. And my friends, when the Apostle Paul considers that truth for himself, and he considers that truth for the Christians who are in Ephesus, no wonder he is beside himself, overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy. The fourth objection is this. I can't believe the biblical doctrine of election because election leads to pride and arrogance. Election leads to pride and arrogance. So some people might say, well, won't the doctrine of election lead those who believe they are elect to look down on those who are not? And therefore, doesn't the doctrine of election lead to pride and arrogance? Well, we can admit that that's possible, but it is surely not biblical. In fact, the Scriptures teach us that God's sovereign grace should have the exact opposite effect upon our souls. You see, if election was conditioned upon us, then yes, it would lead to pride and arrogance. If election was based on our ethnic pedigree, maybe our moral record, our wisdom, our spiritual insight, then it could lead to pride. We could point to those things. It's because I am this or that that God chose me. But the Bible teaches us that God's election is not conditioned upon anything in us. Rather, God's election is unconditional. He chose us even though we didn't meet any of what one might expect to be the proper conditions of salvation. He chose us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. Isn't this what Paul says in the text? Look there in verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. John Calvin rightly observes, commenting on this passage, quote, the very time of election shows it to be free. For what could we have deserved? Or in what did our merit consist before the world was made? We had neither done anything good or bad. And He chose us. The Apostle Paul makes this point explicit in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. He's speaking of Jacob and Esau, who were twins. He says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. God's election is not based on our merit. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we make choices based on merit, right? So, if we're going to choose a senatorial candidate, we have an election coming up, right? If we're going to choose a senatorial candidate, or in a couple years, if we're going to choose a presidential candidate, we make a choice based on merit. We look at their positions, we look at their record, we look at their experience, and then we make a choice. Or you think about a bunch of guys getting together and they're going to play a football game. And so they name two captains and the captains, they start to select their team amongst the group of guys. And who do they choose? Well, of course, they choose the biggest and the strongest and the fastest and the most skilled. Think about Tom Brady, okay? Arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play professional football. 
When he left the Patriots, where he had won, I don't know how many Super Bowls, but many Super Bowls, and he chose to go to another team, how did he make his decision? He looked at the organization and the owner and the coaches, and he looked at the players on the roster, and he chose the team that he thought would put him in the best position to win a Super Bowl. And you know what? God does the exact opposite. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Now, if you were receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul and you weren't rooted in gospel truth, you might take offense to this. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Consider getting a letter like this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You see, those are the types of people we would choose, right? The powerful, the wise, those who come from good stock. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And why did God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, God chooses the scrubs. He chooses the misfits. He chooses the nobodies. He chooses even those who are least likely to succeed. And why does He do it? So that when He wins the Super Bowl of all Super Bowls and redeems a people for Himself for all eternity, He will get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Isn't this what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1? Look at verses 5 through 6. He says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Oh, my friends, the proper response to the doctrine of election is not pride but humility. It's not puffing out our chest in arrogance but getting on our face in humility and gratefulness and giving all glory and praise to God. The doctrine of election inspires hymns like the one written by Isaac Watts. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. My friends, I know of no other doctrine in all of Scripture that has the power to produce Christian humility and gratefulness to God 
like the doctrine of God's electing and predestinating love. Fifth objection. Election results in sin and spiritual sloth. Election results in sin and spiritual sloth. So some people will say, falsely claim, well, I'm chosen, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. If I'm chosen by God and He's chosen to save me, then I can live and do as I please because my salvation is secure. But my friends, notice what Paul says in the text. Paul explicitly states that the purpose of election is, in fact, our holiness. Do you see it there in verse 1? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that, here's the reason, we should be holy and blameless before Him. So those who are the recipients of God's sovereign grace are not perfect, but they will necessarily be marked by holiness, by a changed life, by increased conformity to the person of Jesus. Some people have a uh, mama tried kind of perspective as it relates to God's purpose in salvation. Some of you may remember the old country song by Merle Haggard, Mama Tried. Chorus goes, and I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried, Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, because Mama tried. But listen, my friends, when God purposed to save a people for Himself, He wasn't just trying. He wasn't just putting forth His best effort. When God purposed to save a people for Himself, He determined it, and He will accomplish His purpose. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, if you do not desire, have no desire for holiness... If your life looks no different now than when you first trusted in Christ, it is not because God's purpose of election has failed. It's more likely that you have yet to be saved and redeemed. And the gospel calls you to repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. If you are in Christ, then be encouraged. God is eternally committed to your sanctification. He is eternally committed to changing you and transforming you so that you become more and more like His Son, Jesus. His purpose in saving you is to make you holy and blameless before Him, and His purpose will not fail. Despite all your struggles with sin and up and down in your spiritual life, He is committed to you to the end, and He will see it through until ultimately you are finally glorified and freed from sin forever. Sixth objection. Election means God is cold and calculating. Election means God is cold and calculating. So when some people think of the doctrine of election, they imagine God choosing His people by maybe blindly throwing darts at a dartboard. Or arbitrarily picking a lottery ticket out of a basket. Or throwing the celestial dice to determine whom 
He will save. But this is not how the Bible presents God's sovereign grace. Notice this in our text. In verse 4, Paul writes, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose, and some of your translations, which this is a good translation, might read, according to the good will, the good pleasure of His will. So notice that far from the Apostle Paul here presenting us with a cold, calculating, detached deity, the Apostle Paul is presenting us here with a loving, merciful, heavenly Father who takes delight and great pleasure in choosing to redeem and save unworthy sinners. J.I. Packer has said that if you want to know whether someone understands the Christian faith or not, discern what they think about the fatherhood of God. Because all of Christianity can be summed up in this reality that God is our Father and we are His children. Dear Christian, do you treasure the fatherhood of God? Does it give you comfort to know that you are His child and to cry out to Him in prayer, not just as God, but to call Him Father? Do you understand that the Apostle Paul is saying here that the reason why you can call him father is because he chose, he predestined, he determined to adopt you as his own? Isn't this true when a father or mother adopts a child? The child is not finally responsible for the adoption, the child does not pay the adoption fees. The child does not sign the adoption papers. In fact, prior to the adoption, the child often knows very little or nothing of their adoptive parents. And this does not make their parents' choice to adopt them less meaningful, but in fact makes it all the more precious. Oh, my friends, we call him father because even though we were orphaned in our sin, he came to us in love. And with great pleasure and delight, He chose to make us His own, to adopt us as His children. God's election is not cold and calculating. It is overflowing with love and the delight of a father. Seven, this is the seventh objection. Election makes evangelism meaningless. Election makes evangelism meaningless. The argument, of course, is that if God has already chosen who will be saved, then there's no need for evangelism and missions. God will save them anyways. Well, well, let me just, let me make an initial response by pointing to our text here. Just make this quick observation regarding our text. Notice who the author is to the letter of the Ephesians. Look there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul the Apostle is writing this letter. Not only Paul the Apostle, Paul the missionary, right? Paul the ultimate missionary, the missionary who took the gospel to the Ephesians, who proclaimed the gospel there at great personal risk. In fact, he was so successful and so many people came to faith in Christ that those in the city became angry and they formed a mob and ran him out of the city. But Paul didn't stop preaching the gospel. Paul, the missionary, traveled across land and sea, 
all over the Mediterranean world, even to the great city of Rome, so that he might proclaim this gospel. It is Paul, in fact, that writes with great joy to the church in Ephesus. It is this Paul, the missionary Paul, that writes to the church in Ephesus, blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So obviously the doctrine of election did not dampen Paul's missionary zeal. In fact, what the Apostle Paul says is that the doctrine of election inspired him to share the gospel and to go to the utter ends of the earth, even when it was difficult and hard and could cost him his life. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And you say, well, I don't understand that. I mean, God chose them anyways. They're going to get saved and so on and so forth. Listen, one thing we need to understand here is that if our reason and logic doesn't line up with the Apostle Paul, the burden of the responsibility is not on Paul to submit himself to our reason and logic, but for us to understand his reason and logic and submit ourselves to the reason and logic of the Bible. And Paul understands that just as God determined the end, who will be saved, he determined the means. And that is through prayer and evangelism. And apart from prayer and evangelism, they will not be saved. In fact, according to the Scriptures, if it were not for God's sovereign grace, no one could come to faith in Jesus. Left to our sinful state, the unbeliever will not and cannot trust in Christ. Didn't Jesus Himself teach us this in John chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. James Boyce, the Christian pastor and theologian, says, quote, Election does not destroy or negate our choice, but rather grants us the ability to make a choice that previously we could never have made on our own. And this is the hope that inspired Paul and so many missionaries throughout history that when they were going to the hardest and most difficult places in the world, their hope was not in the heart of those individuals that were there that somehow they would see it and they would come to faith in Christ. No, because apart from God's sovereign act, active work of grace, they would not believe because the heart is so hard, so fallen, so set against God. Their hope was in the fact that God had purposed and saved to, deter, to save a people for Himself from every tribe and nation and language and people, and therefore they could go with confidence preaching the gospel knowing that God would accomplish His purpose. God would save His own. Of course, we don't know who the elect are. They don't wear a sign on their forehead. And therefore, we are to preach the gospel to all. And the Holy Spirit will make distinctions. He will make distinctions between those who are His and those who are not. Charles Spurgeon, who's the great uh, Baptist minister from London in the 19th century, he said it this way, 
We can imagine as we approach the gates of heaven that there's a sign above the gate of heaven that says, whosoever will, come. And then as we step into the gates of heaven and we look back, there's a sign over the gate of heaven that only those who enter can see, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, my friends, there is a mystery between those two things, right? It is a mystery, though, that we do not well, do well to try to reason away in our own minds, but rather to embrace and accept, to humble ourselves before God and His infinite knowledge and eternal wisdom. Eighth and finally, the eighth objection. Election means I cannot know whether or not I am saved. Election means I cannot know whether or not I am saved. So someone might say, if God chose His people before the foundation of the world, how can I know whether I am one of the chosen? Some might go as far as to say, I'm sure God didn't choose me. So how can you know whether or not you are saved, whether you are not one of God's own? And the answer is simply and clearly from the Bible, repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great mark of God's elect. Understand, my friends, God's sovereign grace can never be divorced from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look there in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says God did not simply choose us. What does the text say? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Divine election is always in relationship to Jesus. So we could say it this way. God didn't choose to save us, and then at some later date, choose that Christ would be the means by which He would save us. God's election and the person and work of Jesus Christ can never be separated or divorced from one another. They are one in the same. He chose us in Him. Now notice this. Paul makes this point all throughout these verses. Look there in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption for Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved is the beloved Son of God. It's actually singular in the original language rather than plural, which indicates it's another reference to Jesus, not to the church, but to Christ, the beloved of God. So how can I know whether or not I belong to God? You must find yourself in Christ. And how can we find ourselves in Christ? We turn from our sins and we trust in Him. We believe that He died for our sins on the cross so that we might be forgiven. We believe that He was raised from the dead so that we might experience His resurrection life now and eternal life in the age to come. Notice Paul does not say, He has blessed us through the Apostle, that is through the Apostle Paul, with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us through the church, 
with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us through a priest with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us through our works with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us through our own wisdom and spiritual insight with every spiritual blessing. No, He has blessed us in Christ, in Him, through Jesus Christ, in the beloved Son of God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He will save you. He will help you to live a life of holiness. And He will fill your heart with joy as you rejoice in His sovereign grace. And when you trust in Him, give Him all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that by His Spirit and by His purpose, He enabled you to do so. In fact, what we see in the Bible is that the doctrine of election does not undermine the security of the Christian. In fact, it is the foundation for our security as a Christian. If our security as a Christian was based upon our own will, we would constantly be in and out, in and out, right? But the Lord Jesus says that He knows His own. He calls them by name. He has purposed to save them, and no one will pluck them out of His hand. If God has purposed to save you from eternity past, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will accomplish His purpose. Election does not undermine our security in Christ. Rather, it is the foundation for that security. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word, and we thank You for Your sovereign grace and mercy. Lord, we pray that You would take these truths and help us, Lord, to embrace them by faith, even though we know there is mystery and things that are beyond our own comprehension. And Father, we pray that where our minds come to an end and we cannot fully understand or comprehend, that we would bow and humility, and we would worship you, and we would honor the mystery. Lord, we pray that as Paul models for us here, that these great truths would not be a source, finally, of debate or contention among us, but Lord, it would be a source of great comfort, hope, security, joy, rejoicing. God, by your Spirit, we pray you would do that work in our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.